Would you please turn with me to your study outlines, and as you're turning, let me welcome those of you that are joining us online. We are so glad that you're joining us uh, for our study here today. Also, our friends in Arco, Idaho, hope you're recovering from the thousands and thousands of people that descended on you for the eclipse uh, last uh, this past Monday, and also our friends at First Baptist Church in Kalispell, Montana. We are so glad that you're joining us for our study as well. Now, we're doing, we're finishing up a three-part series next Sunday. Sunday, we'll finish it up. We're doing a three-part series to kind of finish up the summer. And it's based on John 14, verse 6, where Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So last Sunday, we talked about Jesus, the way. Next Sunday, we will finish up by talking about Jesus is the life. And now today, we'll talk about Jesus uh, being the truth. And then you'll see our new clarity series that starts the Sunday after uh, Labor Day. And we'll begin a new series at that time. Uh, But today, we want to talk about Jesus being the truth. Now, when you think of truth, I want to do a paradigm shift here today uh, for our church family. And I think that we as Christians need a paradigm shift and to get off being on the defensive and go on the offensive. Here's what I mean. We're usually on the defensive when people attack the Christian faith. We think we have to be right 100% of the time in 100% of the areas and the questions that we receive. And we think that if there's any hole in our defense, if there's one little thing we can't defend about the Christian faith, then we have lost the debate. It's kind of like terrorism. The terrorists only have to be right once. The FBI, law enforcement, they have to be right every time in order to protect us. But the terrorists only have to be right once. And we, and we think it's like that, that if we just have one mistake, one area that we can't defend adequately, then we have lost the de- debate. I want to switch the paradigm because really what we should be is on offensive, which means that um, it's what is most true. Uh, we say, is it more true that there's not a God and that everything happened around us, this all got here by random chance and random cells experiencing random chance? Or is there more evidence that there is a God? It doesn't have to be perfect evidence. It just has to be more evidence that there is a God than that there's not a God. Uh, Joe Echeverria was talking to me before the service, and he went to Idaho Falls right by Arco in order to experience the eclipse. And he said it was so marvelous because he said it just, there's no point in the eclipse except for the human beings on planet Earth to just go, whoa, whoa, and to say there's got to be a designer behind the design of the universe. Now, that's a right brain response. Whoa, uh, a left brainer engineer type caught me after the first service, and he says, well, you know, Glenn, we're able to study the corona better because of the eclipse. So there's a left brain reason for the eclipse and a right brain reason for the eclipse. There's a scientific reason that helps our broaden our understanding of our left part of our brain, and there's the right part of the brain, the right side that just goes, oh my goodness, there's got to be a design behind the design of the universe. So you just ask the question, which is more true, that there is a God or not? Same is true with the Christian faith. Is there uh, more evidence that the Christian faith is true, or is there more evidence that some other faith is true, or some other worldview is true? Where does most of the evidence lead you? A book that we're using as a background for this particular series and for the next series as well. But I love the book because it's an awesome book. I would highly recommend it to you. But I also love it for the title. It's called, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. And why I love that title is because it puts the shoe on the other foot. Or maybe it puts a shoe on both feet. That is, we both have to have evidence and to present it. 
And we don't have to have perfect 100% evidence. We just have to have more evidence than they do. And so does it take more faith to be an atheist? I don't have that much faith to think that everything we experience is just randomly, it all just happened. And even if you work it all the way back to the Big Bang Theory, to the beginning of things, who put the stuff there to explode in the Big Bang? Even if everything started with highly dense uh, matter at the very beginning of time that exploded and, and, and launched the Big Bang, even if you can get it all the way back there, who put the stuff there to begin with? And the answer of an atheist is, it just was there. As opposed to, there's a designer behind the design of the universe. And so, which takes more faith, to be an atheist or to believe in God? Which takes more faith, to be a Christ follower or to be a follower of some other world view? You don't have to have 100% of the answers. Just evidence beyond a reasonable doubt. It's like a court of law. Uh, all you're trying to get, how many of you have ever had jury duty? Let me see your hands, all right? How many of you have ever served on a jury? Let me see your hands. And you know, all they're asking you to do is evidence beyond a reasonable doubt. Not perfect evidence, just evidence beyond a reasonable doubt. Uh, The last two times I had jury duty, I have ended up on a jury. And that uh, belies the mythology that pastors never get put on juries. That, that's kind of the myth out there. Uh, the, the idea, the thinking behind it is that the defense attorney doesn't want you on the jury because you'll be too judgmental. And the prosecution doesn't want you on the jury because you're going to be too nice. But I end up on juries every time. Uh, I must have just a stupid face they think they can persuade, I guess, or something. And uh, let me tell you a couple of jury stories, the last two times that I was on a jury. And uh, one of the stories I've told you before, and, and the other story I've not told you before. First story I've told you before, uh, a while back I was in a trial in Covina, and I was on a jury, and I, I go in there, and I just noticed how sharp the judge was. I mean, this judge, she was the sharpest professional I just had ever seen in that kind of arena. Just so sharp and so intelligent and so just really, really sharp. And so I was very impressed by her. And lo and behold, I get called up to be on the jury. And so she's asking me all these questions in front of the whole court to see if I can be on the jury. So she says, do you recognize the defendants? And I said, no, I I don't recognize them. Don't know them. Uh, Do you recognize anybody on the defense team? No, don't don't know him, don't recognize him. Anybody on the prosecution, do you, do you recognize? No, I don't. And then she looked at me and she goes, do you recognize me? And the courtroom got real kind of awkward and tense. And I'm like, oh my goodness, where is this going? And I said, no, I don't. And she goes, I go to your church. And the courtroom just exploded in laughter. Just, just like you're doing right there. I turned 20 shades of red. And, and then when the laughter died down, she looks around the courtroom and goes, it's a really big church, she says. Yeah, yeah. And she and her husband sat on the back row of the, of the balcony there, the 945 service. Well, I was so embarrassed that after the trial was over, Kimberly and I took she and her husband out to dinner and uh, just got, uh, got to know better. Now, that one I've mentioned before. But here, I've never told you about my involvement 
in the famous Wiener Schnitzel robberies trial. You've probably heard of it. It was very, very dramatic. Um, uh, you know, bigger than the O.J. Simpson trial. This was a this was a big deal, and it was funny because uh, the Gildners were here, uh, Fred and during uh, Darlene, and uh, they have since moved to Idaho, but they were back this week, and they always sit the fourth row back on on this right section right over here at the eight thirty service, and they built three hundred Wiener Schnitzels during their career. They, they built three, like half of them around there. As a matter of fact, when we were, lived in Upland, our family expanded to six children. And when it did, we built an addition onto the house. They built the addition, and I swear it looked like a wiener schnitzel. It was, um, <laughs> it was like a little area where it was like a drive through window, you know, and we always joke that uh, that looked like a wiener schnitzel. So at any rate, um, in this trial, we had to determine these three guys robbed a Wiener Schnitzel in Ontario. This is a Wiener Schnitzel in Ontario. They robbed it, and they full view of the video cameras. Just full view. There they were, two of them at least, two of the three, clear as could be. And just in case you missed it the first time, they came back a week later and robbed the same Wiener Schnitzel. So just in case the video cameras didn't catch them perfectly the first time, they got them a second time as well. And so when the trial was over, we ended up convicting two of the young men. Uh, we, did, we quitted the, the third one because we didn't believe there was enough evidence. Now, if I walked out of that trial, you say, Glenn, are you 100% sure that you did the right thing? I would be like, no, I can't be 100%. There could be some alternative explanation. I can't be 100% sure of this. They said, are you convinced beyond a reasonable doubt? And I would say, oh, yeah. Really, I can sleep at night, I really believe, because the weight of evidence fell that way. And that's the way it is with following Jesus. You don't have to have 100% of the answers 100% of the time, but does the weight of evidence fall in his favor? There are thousands of pieces of evidence. Today, we're just going to look at 10 in a very narrow area, a very tiny area. We're just going to look at 10 of those. The top 10 reasons we know that the New Testament writers told the truth. The top 10 reasons we know that the New Testament writers told the truth. Peter Kreft writes, why would the apostles lie? If they lied, what was their motive? What did they get out of it? What they got out of it was misunderstanding, rejection, persecution, torture, and martyrdom. Hardly a list of perks. The New Testament documents were written by eyewitnesses and their contemporaries between 15 and 40 years after the death of Jesus. You add to that the confirmation from non-Christian sources as well as archaeology, and we have a fairly good amount of evidence, convincing evidence, that what the New Testament writers wrote was true. But here's the question we don't know. How do we know if they exaggerated or embellished the truth? How do we know that they exactly told the truth? What are those reasons we know that the New Testament writers told the truth? We're going to look at 10. Number one, the New Testament writers included embarrassing details about themselves. Now, we think, well, why is that a big deal? It's a big deal because of what historians call the principle of embarrassment. Uh, the principle of embarrassment is used by historians to test whether an author is telling the truth or not. They will say that in works from the past, if a writer tells embarrassing details about himself or herself, 99.9% of the time, they are telling the truth because people just don't uh, do that. Uh, I've uh, mentioned uh, before about the Old Testament and how when you compare it to the works of antiquity, it just stands out like a sore thumb, just huge, just stands out because all other works of antiquity always make the hero, the person in it, look fabulous. 
the ancient writings of the Egyptians. Pharaoh so-and-so won every battle he ever fought, and he was awesome all the time, the end. The Babylonian Chronicles. The king of Babylon was super-duper, and he never lost a battle. And, and we know from external sources that was not the case. But they always sugarcoated, except for one glaring exception, the Old Testament. And there you got a mess of people that are making all kinds of dumb decisions all the time. And historians would tell you that has the ring of authenticity. Now we come to the New Testament writers. How do the New Testament writers portray themselves? As a bunch of morons, okay? They're dim-witted. Jesus has always gone, oh, you guys, can't you understand? Do I have to tell it to you again? They portray themselves as uncaring. Get the little kids away from Jesus. And Jesus is going, stop it. Little kids, come here. Hey, Jesus, can we call down fire from heaven to burn up our enemies? Jesus like, come on, you guys. Um, they're portrayed as petty, arguing about who's number one within hours of the death of Jesus. Uncaring, uh, they fall asleep during Jesus' greatest moment of need. Cowards, they run at the moment of decision who's going to stand for Jesus and who will not. Doubters, doubting all through the process, including after the resurrection. One of the most amazing verses. And I'm, whenever I read it, I'm like, oh, why'd you include that in there? That's embarrassing. What? Matthew 28, verse 17. This is after the resurrection, at the ascension, as Jesus is about to ascend into heaven. When they saw him, Jesus, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Even at that point, they report that some doubted. Nobody includes that if you're trying to convince your audience. Now, I could have dozens of verses to support each of these points. I'm just going to pick like one or two for each of, or just a couple to, to, for each of these points. Uh, Mark 8, verse 33. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter, the Peter who was the leader of the early church. Get behind me, Satan. Do you report that the leader of your movement was at one time called by Jesus, Satan? How many of you, if you're inviting somebody to Purpose Church, say, oh, you'll love our pastor. Jesus called him Satan the other day. You know, no, no, nobody's, nobody's gonna do that. Why? Because of the, the principle of an embarrassment. Okay. Um, true story, uh, last Sunday, uh, or a couple days ago, and we always laugh among the pastors. Uh, we, we, we say around our church, no two days are alike. No two days are ever alike. There's always something new coming down the way. And my assistant, uh, Tina, uh, she says, Glenn, you're never going to believe the call I just got. Uh, it was from a television casting producer at Crybaby Media in New York City contacted uh, me this, this past week, uh, contacted our church. And this producer works with companies that uh, do produce reality shows. And so I'm like, oh, you want 60-year-old men that want to be male models late in life. Is that what you're <laughs> Project Runway for old guys? Ah, I gotcha. No, I didn't really think that. I'm just kidding. Okay. Um, he says, no. She said, now they're casting a new show about family-run megachurches. And we would like to do a reality show on your family. Not a chance is that going to happen. As a matter of fact, I took it home and presented it to Kimberly just because I wanted to see her reaction. You know, my wife laughed in my face, you know. Not a chance. Why? Because what I refused to do, the disciples did. And they did what I refused to do. I, you guys, if you had a camera in our home, you wouldn't listen to me preach anymore. Not a chance that's going to happen. 
Now, I have a more modern example. Last night, 9 o'clock, and you, younger ones, you can explain to me, students, how this happened, because I still haven't figured out how this happened. Pastor Adrian, our junior high pastor and communications director, calls me frantically at 9 o'clock last night. He says, Glenn, your Instagram is stuck on live feed, and it's recording everything going on in your home at this moment. I have no idea. No, I, I was texting Pastor Lisa and Pastor Sham about uh, giving, you know, that we can give if we want to to Texas Relief. And we were texting that. Next thing I know, I'm being broadcast to anybody listening what's going on in the Gunderson home at 9 o'clock on a Saturday night. I was frantic to get it off. Why? Because of the principle of embarrassment. Now, what I refuse to do The disciples did. The New Testament writers included embarrassing details about themselves. Number two, New Testament writers also included embarrassing details and difficult sayings of Jesus. Pastor Eric did a brilliant job a couple weeks ago of talking about the powerful evidence of James, who wrote the book of James, the brother of Jesus, and his other brothers did not believe in Jesus prior to the resurrection. Something happened to make them believe he was the God of the universe. I could only be the resurrection, okay? But it includes the details in there that, that James and the brothers, they didn't believe in Jesus during his ministry. They even record what the enemies of Jesus said about Jesus. He's a deceiver. He's a drunkard. He's demon-possessed. He's a madman. Here's an example. Mark 3, verses 20 and 21. Then Jesus entered a house And again, a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. Verse 21, when his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. Now, if you're trying to sell somebody on something, do you include in there that the people closest to him, his family, thought he was out of his mind? No, but the New Testament writers did. You know why they did it? Because it's true. Because that's the way it happened. The New Testament writers included embarrassing details and difficult sayings of Jesus. Number three, the New Testament writers left in the demanding sayings of Jesus. Let me just ask you a question. If you're starting to, if you want to start a new religion, you want to start a new movement, do you include in it things like this? Uh, Matthew chapter five, verse 38, Jesus said, you've heard that it was said eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Who includes that in if you're trying to get people to follow your movement? They put it in because that's what he said. Number four, the New Testament writers carefully distinguished Jesus' words from their own. Now, uh, this is a very interesting one. You're going to say, why does that make a difference? So let me just demonstrate. Uh, first of all, there were no quotation marks in the, in the first century Greek. No quotation marks like we have today. First century Greek that the New Testament was written in had no quotation marks. And yet the New Testament writers make it crystal clear, this is what we say and this is what Jesus said. That's why if you've ever had a red letter edition of the Bible, they all agree with each other. 
um, just for the most part. You know, you won't have scholars that say, well, this part Jesus said, and this part Jesus didn't say. No, no, your red letter editions, you know, that where they put the words of Jesus in red letter, uh, they're all basically the same. Why? Because it is so easy to tell. They make it crystal clear, this is what we're saying, uh, this is what Jesus is saying. Let me give you an example. First Corinthians chapter 7, Paul writes, uh, to the married, I give this a command, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband. But if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. To the rest I say this, I, not the Lord, if any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. Now why is it a big deal that they, they make it so clear, what did Jesus say, what did they say? Because Paul wrote almost half of the New Testament. And he was right in the middle of the big debates of the first century. First century church had these kind of debates. Circumcision. Do Gentiles still have to be circumcised or do they not have to be circumcised? The law of Moses. Do non-Jewish followers of Jesus have to follow the law of Moses or not? Uh, Speaking in tongues, women in ministry. uh, These were all the the ones that they uh, had to to deal with. And it would have been so, so tempting for Paul as he's writing these things to just kind of infer that Jesus said it. Whatever he believed, settle the debate, Jesus said it, and that, that would be it. They never give into that temptation. Never give into that temptation. Imagine a couple of years ago that I had the chance to sneak something into the Bible and we were debating about our name change, Purpose Church or First Baptist Church of Pomona. Oh, how I would have loved to have said, and then Jesus doth saith, verily unto you, thou shalt name the name of thy church Purpose Church. And I could have said, hey, don't ask me. This is what Jesus said, all right? It, it would have carried the day, right? And, 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 and yet, I didn't have that opportunity. But the New Testament writers had that opportunity. They had that opportunity. And yet, they never give into it. The New Testament writers carefully distinguish Jesus' words uh, from their own. Number five, the New Testament writers included uh, events related to the resurrection that they could, would not have invented. If you were inventing the story, you would have not included uh, certain details. Let me give you an example. Uh, Matthew 28, verse 11. While the women were on their way, and I'm sorry, this is first century stuff, not me, uh, but why, why would this be a problem right off the bat? You wouldn't have women as your first encounters with Jesus and the resurrection because, you know, this is painful to say, but in the first century, how much weight did a woman's testimony carry in court? Anybody want to tell me? Zero. Zero. So if you're inventing a story, why in the world would you have the first people that encounter Jesus be people that had zero influence in court? Their testimony doesn't amount to anything. As a matter of fact, one of them, Mary Magdalene, Luke admits to the fact that she was demon-possessed. So why have previously demons possessed before Jesus? But why in the world would you say, hey, you want to believe my story? It was women and one of them was demon possessed. Nobody's going to make that stuff up. You know how they say you can't make this stuff up? Nobody would make that stuff up. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, You are to say his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. 
So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. Why would you include that if it wasn't true? Because it could so easily be refuted. The readers that were all contemporaries of the events would have said, that's not true. Why'd he include it in there? Because he'd lose all of his credibility if it wasn't true. He included it in because it was, it was true. As a matter of fact, Justin Martyr, uh, who wrote around 150 AD, and Tertullian, who wrote around 200 AD, they both said that they were still telling the story close to 200 years after the resurrection. They were still telling the story. And you know what it infers from their story? That they knew that the tomb was empty. Nobody refuted that the tomb was empty. The enemies of Jesus, the friends of Jesus. Nobody refuted that the tomb was empty. They just had different theories as to how it got empty. But they never refuted that. But why include this detail if it could so easily destroy the credibility of the story? Number six, the New Testament writers included people, uh, included more than 30 historically uh, confirmed people in their writings. People like Pilate and Caiaphas and Festus, Felix, the entire Herodian bloodline, uh, etc. Number seven, the New Testament writers included divergent details. Okay, this this is very interesting because it's counterintuitive. It's the opposite of what you would think. You would think that if the different witnesses had divergent details, oh, well, that shows that, that they're not telling the truth. Now, they never contradict. They never have contradictory details. They just have divergent details. That is, they emphasize, different writers emphasize different things. So, for example, at the resurrection, Matthew emphasized the one angel uh, that spoke at the resurrection. Uh, John emphasized, describes how many angels Mary saw at, at, at the resurrection. Uh, Norman Geisler and Frank Turek uh, write this, divergent details actually strengthen the case that these are eyewitness accounts. As a matter of fact, if a judge has two witnesses come into him or her, and the witnesses uh, come in, and they have exactly the same testimony. I mean, word for word, precise, exact testimony. Is the judge impressed by that? No. He or she says it must have been collusion. It's obvious that these two witnesses got together, agreed on their story, memorized it word for word, and told it word for word. Uh, he or she, the judge, is not impressed by that. It's called collusion. It actually strengthens it when there are divergent details. Give me an example. Yesterday at two o'clock in the afternoon, I went online uh, on my phone to, to read three different articles on Hurricane Harvey. And CBS, ABC, NBC. A CBS emphasized the Coast Guard rescues that were going on in the Gulf of Mexico. ABC emphasized the words of the governor of Texas, Greg Abbott. And NBC emphasized the destruction of Hurricane Harvey. They all were accurate. They all were telling the truth. They were all telling about the same event. They just chose to emphasize different divergent details. Uh, Simon Greenleaf, who was the Harvard law professor who wrote the standard study on what constitutes legal evidence, says the four gospels would have been received in evidence in any court of justice without the slightest hesitation. Number eight, the New Testament writers challenged their readers to check out verifiable facts, even facts about miracles. Uh, Luke chapter one, verses one through four, many have undertaken to underdraw, uh, to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. 
just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you've been taught. Peter writes in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, he said, For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12, I persevered in demonstrating among you the marks of a true apostle, including signs, wonders, and miracles. Now, why is that a big deal? Because he's writing to somebody and, and, and saying, um, uh, remember the miracles I performed the last time I was with you? Now, if he had not performed those miracles, everybody would look at each other in the audience and say, I don't remember a miracle. Do you remember a miracle? And it would totally destroy his credibility. If I were to get up here and preach and say, remember the miracles I performed last Sunday when, when I was preaching? Uh, now, I did predict the eclipse accurately. I, you know, I did. I never said that. No, no, I'm kidding. But you'd look at each other and say, miracles? What miracles? And you wouldn't listen to anything more I had to say today because I would have shot my credibility with you. And yet Paul says, remember those miracles, including signs, wonders, and miracles that I performed among you the last time that I was with you. And then number nine, New Testament writers describe miracles like other historical events with simple, unembellished accounts. Now, this is very, very interesting because literary critics will tell you there is a total different feel to that which is mythological or legendary as opposed to that which is historical. They said, you can tell the difference. And they would be able to describe that technically, what the difference is. But, you, but they would say, even somebody like me, or you, that we could still understand what he means by the feel of it. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. Uh, here's something from what's called the Gospel of Peter, which was a fake gospel written 100 years after uh, the resurrection. 100 years later, century later, it was a fake legend that perpetrated itself to be true, and yet it was proven uh, to be false. Now listen to its description of the resurrection. Early in the morning, as the Sabbath dawn, there came a large crowd from Jerusalem and the surrounding areas to see the sealed tomb. But during the night before the Lord's day dawned, as the soldiers were keeping guard, two by two in every watch, there came a great sound in the sky. And they saw the heavens opened and two men descend, shining with a great light, and they drew near to the tomb. The stone which had been set on the door rolled away by itself and moved to one side. And the tomb was opened, and both the young men went in. Now when these soldiers saw that, they woke up the centurion and the elders, for they also were there keeping watch. While they were yet telling them the things which they had seen, they saw three men come out of the tomb, two of them sustaining the other, and a cross following after them. The heads of the two they saw had heads that reached up to heaven, but the head of him that was led by them went beyond heaven. And they heard a voice out of the heavens saying, have you preached unto them that sleep? the answer that was heard from the cross was yes. Now, if you're writing a story of the resurrection, that's the guy I want telling the story. Uh, large crowds, heads of men stretching into the heavens and beyond. And here's the best part, a walking and talking cross. If I'm gonna sell you a good story, I got myself a walking and talking cross. Now, 
Compare that to Mark 16, verses 4 through 8. Mark 16. But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Simple, unembellished historical truth. The New Testament writers describe miracles like other historical events with simple, unembellished accounts. And then number 10, the New Testament writers abandoned their long-held sacred beliefs. Not just the New Testament writers. We're talking about thousands of Jerusalem Jewish people, including Pharisees and priests. The New Testament writers abandoned their long-held sacred beliefs and practices, adopted new ones, and did not deny their testimony under persecution or threat of death. And you'll see the chart there in your study outline of a list of just overnight, they flip from believing one thing is true for 1,500 years to something else is true uh, practically overnight. J.P. Moreland writes, the Jewish people believe that these institutions, uh, things like that you see on the list there, animal sacrifice, law of Moses, uh, strict monotheism, the Sabbath, a conquering Messiah, circumcision. They, They believe that these institutions were entrusted to them by God. They believe that to abandon these institutions would be to risk their souls being damned to hell after death. Now, a rabbi named Jesus appears from a lower class region. He teaches for three years, gathers a following of lower and middle class people, gets in trouble with the authorities, and gets crucified along with 30,000 other Jewish men. I mean, everybody was getting crucified back then. He's just one of 30,000 other Jewish men during this time period who are executed during this time period. But five weeks after he's crucified, over 10,000 Jews are following him and claiming that he is the initiator of a new religion. And get this, they're willing to give up or alter all five of these social and uh, institutions that have been taught since childhood have such importance both sociologically and theologically. Something very big was going on. Um, Supreme Court Justice Antonin, Antonin Scalia, who just recently died just within the last year or two, um, Supreme Court Justice writes this, it is not irrational to accept the testimony of eyewitnesses who had nothing to gain. The worldly wise do not believe in the resurrection of the dead. So everything from Easter morning to the ascension had to be made up by the groveling enthusiasts as part of their plan to get themselves martyred. It's not that we have 100% of the answers 100% of the time. It is that the weight of the evidence is that there is a God. The weight of the evidence, evidence beyond a reasonable doubt, is that Jesus was who he claimed to be. Son of God, risen from the dead, crucified, lived a perfect life, performed miracles. And that is why we follow him. Not because we have perfect answers 100% of the time, but because the weight of evidence leads us to do that. The New Testament writers 
abandoned their long-held sacred beliefs and practices, adopted new ones, and here's the part I want to end with, and did not deny their testimony under persecution or threat of death. 